Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. There. We are continuing today with the uh, section in Scripture usually referred to as the Beatitudes. We're concentrating on verse 5. I'm asking the people to read the whole section so we don't lose sight of the fact that we are not looking at fragmented statements. We're looking at, at a discussion. But we are taking a good time to go through it to understand and to understand what it means um, a, a little bit more in detail. We're looking at verse 5. It says, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And uh, I would like to begin discussing this statement in the context of the Beatitudes by asking you a couple of questions, presenting a scenario to you and asking you to meditate and reflect throughout the sermon on that particular scenario. What would you do when someone next to you is less imperfect and annoys you? And I'm talking about really annoying you. Would you get angry? Would you be critical? Would you be mocking that person? Putting down that person? Or maybe if you were in school, unfortunately it used to be only college now, they're beginning to do that in high schools as well. That person may be the subject of pretty nasty hazing. Think about that for a moment. And let me, let me give you an illustration to help you to think it through. Some years back, an angry man rushed through the Rijks Museum in Amsterdam until he ran, reached Rembrandt's famous painting, The Night Watch. And when he got to that painting, he pulled out a knife and slashed that painting repeatedly before he could be stopped. Not too long later, a hostile man went into St. Peter's in Rome with a hammer and began to smash Michelangelo's Pietà. Didn't go very far, thankfully, but it did damage the statue. Now, those are two masterpieces, two work of arts that are truly cherished by many, many, many people. And both were severely damaged. I'm asking the same question about that. What would you do if someone next to you is less than perfect and annoys you? Because now all of a sudden these two masterpieces were less than perfect and quite annoying in seeing them damaged that way. Would we be angry? Maybe. Would we criticize the painter and the sculptor? Probably not. Will we be mocking the work that they did? I don't think so. Because we would understand that someone damaged that, but it was not the sculptor or the painter that made them that way. Would it, will we put them down as being worthless? And the answer is probably not again, because we would understand. So why is it 
that we don't understand it when it comes to people? Why is it that when it comes to people, we have less of a respect than we do for two pieces of matter? Because after all, that painting is nothing but a canvas with some color in it. And that sculpture is nothing like a piece of marble. It's nothing more than a piece of marble. A piece of marble may be beautiful, wonderful, may be a masterpiece, a work of art, but it doesn't begin to compare with a masterpiece and a work of art that you are in God's hands. So why then do we have less respect for people than we do for inanimate things? Think about that as we go through all this today. Now, just in case that doesn't resonate with you, let me give you another illustration to keep in mind through the sermon, and maybe that resonates with you a little more. Marianne was a teenager that had grown up in an atheist family. And a local pastor in her area and his wife spent months talking with her and introducing her to Christ until she started to respond with eagerness, and so she started attending church. But one day she did something really foolish. Well, you might expect a teenager who's grown up without Christ to make some foolish mistakes. And so she did. And that came to the knowledge of a church. What would you say to her? All right, I'll get back to these afterwards. But just in case one resonates more, the other, more than the other, I'll give you both. Well, let's look at Matthew 5 and verse 5 and see what in the world that has to do with these illustrations that I'm bringing to your attention and suspending you, putting you in suspended animation about. Well, blessed are the gentle. In the New American Standard Bible, some other versions say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Gentle or meek comes as a translation from the Greek. Because that segment was written in Greek. And the Greek is praotis. I probably mispronounced it, but you bear with me. It means humility. It means patience and recognition of an injury. It means a middle point between meanness and cowardice. The opposite of sudden anger, the opposite of malice, the opposite of vengeance. Now, meek and gentle are not words that would be honored and highly regarded in our culture or society, nor were they honored and highly regarded in the Roman culture. But there were virtues that were kind of respected by some of the um, philosophers, the Greek philosophers, who would tend to um, speak highly about certain virtues. Aristotle had a, it was one of them, and he had a, a, an interesting way of defining things. And the reason why I'm saying this is to help you to capture the meaning of that Greek word. Aristotle has this unique style in defining things. He would consider two extremes, two excesses, too much of this, too little of the same things, as being bad things, vices. In this particular case, you might consider an excess of anger, and there is a Greek word, orgilotis, or orgesia, an excess lack of anger. 
And Aristotle will look at too much anger as being a vice, too little, too insufficient anger as being a vice, but the part in between, the right amount to be a virtue. And so Aristotle defines this term, priorities, that we are looking at today, that is translated with gentle or meek in our Bibles, as being that middle point between too much anger and too little anger. It can be said that the virtue, that it is the virtue of the individual who is always angry at the right time, but never angry at the wrong time. Think about that for a second. But there is more to it. Because praotis is also a word that is used to refer to an animal that is domesticated to obey the commands of the owner. And as such, this term would refer to the individual who has every instinct, impulse, or passion under control and subject to the instructions and the control of the Lord. Think about being domesticated by the Lord. Right? So this blessing that we are talking about today, the blessing of gentleness, is for those who are humble, who accept the guidance of the Lord, obedient to his command, who are angry at the right time with righteous indignation, but never at the wrong time in selfishness, arrogance, and pride. It is for those who regard themselves as servants of Christ and are acting as servants of Christ, surrendering themselves to his instructions and to his will. See, there is a lot more to it when you look at it, that the way that word in the original language is being used. So let's, let's look a little bit at the background of that, and let's ask ourselves, how would this statement sound to the ears of the Jewish people in Jesus' day? Because after all, that statement was pronounced in front of the Jews. When Jesus went up on that hill, or mountain if you want to put it that way, but I would call it a hill, uh, and talk to the people from the hill. Remember, the Jewish people of those days were looking for a hero. They were looking for someone who would make them free from the dominion of the Romans. They expected Messiah to be a great leader who would restore the pride of Israel. They expected a leader who would cast out the Romans, ushering a new age in the kingdom of Judah through political or, or military means. But yet, Jesus was quoting a psalm, yes, a psalm written at the time of, the, of King David, a psalm that they should be very familiar with because they were singing them in the, in the temple. And the psalm was Psalm 37. In verse 9, Psalm 37 says, For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. So notice that concept of waiting for the Lord and how it connects with the concept of being surrendered to the Lord and His will that we described a little bit before. But look at verse 37 in Psalm, I'm sorry, in verse 11 of Psalm 37. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Even though the principle had been there since the days of David, they did not quite understand what he meant. So expecting a Messiah or a leader that will give them political 
and military uh, prestige again and restore the pride of Israel again. Imagine their surprise, the shock, the perplexity when this individual that seemed like it could be the Messiah would then say what he said. Blessed are the gentle, the meek, because they're the ones that are going to inherit the earth. What are you talking about? We need someone strong. We need someone, you know, aggressive to kick these people, these invaders, out of our land. We don't need a meek person. What are you talking about? How can we have the kingdom reestablished with someone who is gentle? Try that approach with the Romans. (laughs) Excuse me, Mr. Roman. They would think, could could you please leave our land? We would be so appreciative. You know, that's the way they would come across to them. It would be a shock. It would be something like, what are you talking about? That's not what we expect. That's not what we were hoping for. And even today, that statement stands in contrast with the expectations of most people. And by the way, the way I, I used it, it's not really the way that the word would, what would be described by the term that is used for gentle or humble. I, I was using the way they would mock it, but not necessarily the way it is. We'll see that in a moment. So, What does that gentleness, that meekness, look in practice? Because even with that definition clarified, we may still have the idea that meekness or gentleness is equal to weakness, to being spineless. That's not quite the case at all. It takes a very strong person to receive injury and leave a vindication of it to the Lord. It takes a very strong person to surrender to the will of God and not fight and not fight that will with every step to try to make things go their own way. My way. And even when it is hard to follow the will of God, we are still called to follow it, and it takes strength to do that. It takes strength not to take things into our own hands. It takes strength not to think that we are the only ones that can do things right. It takes strength to accept the person next to us who is less than perfect. To accept the person next to us who is not quite in its prime, in his or her prime. Who even may be defective in some ways. Like that Rembrandt or La Pietà. It is not, however, the same as being passive and naive. Look at that, at the example that the Bible gives us. Jesus was meek, and so was Moses and Paul. But none of them was weak, passive, naive. Look at Jesus. Yes, he was meek, and he never stopped being meek and gentle, and yet... You see him throwing out the tables of the money changers, dispersing the animal, walking through a mob of people that had gone out to kill them. That's not weakness, is it? 
Moses was meek. And yet he had no qualms about judging the people according to God's word. Even when the people were against him. He was able to stand before Pharaoh with boldness and courage. He was able to guide and rule a people that was often rebellious against the Lord. And he was able to lead them to the promised land. It doesn't take a weak person to do that. It takes a strong individual. But it also takes a meek and a humble and gentle person to be surrendered to God to accomplish all that. Look at Paul. Paul too was meek. But he was able to withstand the opposition of the Jews and, and be quite convincing in that. He was stern at times when needed. And if you don't think so, read 1 Corinthians and you'll find out. He had the courage and the strength to walk right back into town to continue to preach the gospel right after he recovered from being stoned and left for dead. That's not weakness in any count. But it is meekness. The surrendering to God and God's will, even when things are not easy. To be meek and gentle means to be controlled, not undisciplined. The mind and the body of a meek and gentle Christian are controlled by discipline. Not set loose or given to passions and urges indiscriminately. Look at this aspect and see what scripture says. In Romans 6 it's written, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. In 1 Corinthians 6, it's written, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So even the things that may be okay by the law, Paul says, I should not be mastered by them. They should not control me, because I need to be in control. The only one that controls us is God himself. In first Peter, in, I'm sorry, second Peter chapter one, it's written, for now, now for this very reason also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly Brotherly kindness, love. Now they say it's a progression in there, a progression of growth. And when you get to that love, when you get to that agape love at the end, it embeds and incorporates all the other attributes of Second Peter chapter 1. The faith, the moral excellence, the knowledge, the self-control, the perseverance, the godliness, the kindness, the brotherly love. They're all now included and embedded and the final attribute, which is the outpouring, the, the complete outpouring of oneself for the sake of others. That giving love that God demonstrates when he gives his only begotten son for our sake. Being humble and gentle means, I'm sorry, being meek and gentle means being humble, not prideful. They're the ones who are totally surrendered before God. And they know that they don't have it all. They know they don't know it all. And so they surrender.
to the Lord instead of trying to push their own way in life. Surrender to the moral will of God and allow God to tell them what is right, what is wrong, without them making determinations always by themselves. Romans 12 says, for though the gra- uh, I'm sorry, for through the grace given to me, I say to every, everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So again, we're instructed not to think of ourselves too highly. Why? It never says, by the way, not to think of ourselves too lowly, because usually, even when we put ourselves down, we do that out of pride. Um, Sometimes what happens is that we think so highly of ourselves that we set a big high standard for ourselves, and then we get all depressed because we didn't achieve that standard that we think we should achieve. So the bottom line is pride. And then we get upset because we don't live up to the pride that we put forth for ourselves to accomplish. In Philippians chapter 2, it's written, Do not do anything from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Yes, regard that person next to you, that broken person, that faulty person, that person that has a lot of problems that you would lash out to, by nature, regard them as better than yourselves. That's the way to be meek and gentle according to Christ. That's the way to be Christian according to the Beatitudes. Gentle means also not easily provoked. We are called to remain in control when dealing with people. Oh yeah. Those people. You know what kind of people I'm talking about. The kind of people that tick you off. The kind of people that make you feel like, man, I got to do something about this. The kind of people that are annoying. The kind of people that you feel good when they leave the room. The meek and gentle Christian remains in control when dealing with those people as well. The meek and gentle Christian doesn't need to fight and struggle all the time. But remains cool, even tempered, capable of showing that they are not... Yes, sometimes they are not pleased. But without acting impulsively. Because there is a time to say, you know what? What you just did hurt me. And I'm not pleased about that at all. There is a time to stand up to the individual and say, you know what? I think you know better than that. And I think the Lord would want you to act better than this. But in a controlled manner. The scripture tells us, speak the truth in love. And that is an important key about that. It's a very important key. You're not just to speak the truth in cruelty. You are to speak the truth in love. Being meek and gentle means being forgiving and not revengeful. Look at Matthew 6. If you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But why do I put that in, con in the context of meekness and gentleness? Well, remember what good old Aristotle said, that he, he doesn't define what the Bible says, but he helps us to understand that Greek word. <clears throat> the middle way between being too angry and not angry enough will be regarded as a virtue. Think about that for a second. When you think about forgiving others for their transgressions, it's a middle way, isn't it? Because you're not saying to these people, oh, it's okay. No, it's not okay to sin. Ever. So don't give me a bunch of baloney by saying that sinning is okay. It's not okay. But that doesn't mean I've got to kill you for it. Or attack you. Or browbeat you. Or humiliate you. Or put you down. You see the middle way? The middle way is the individual that can forgive the transgression without condoning it. Forgiveness is not the same as condoning. Forgiveness is not the same as complacency. Forgiveness is not the same thing as compromising. Forgiveness means I acknowledge that that is a sin. I acknowledge that that hurts, but I forgive that. And I will not hold it against you. But of course, if you need my help to overcome it, I'll be there to help you. Help you not by pushing you down. Help you not by squelching you. Helping you by supporting you, sustaining you, lifting you up. Encouraging you to go the right way instead of browbeating you for going the wrong way. It's a difference, you see? The middle balance between those two excesses that is defined by that Greek word, by that virtue that Jesus Christ was talking about. Romans 12 says, Never take your, revenge, your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. When you're going through a difficult time, sometimes that does not seem to be the case. But I guarantee you, all my life, that that is so true. Because I've seen it time and time again. I have been so tempted to take that upon my hands several times. When people were absolutely vicious. To the point that I... My whole family was severely damaged from that. And the opportunity came up to get even. And I was so tempting. And it seemed to be the only way out of it. Because, you know, if I just give in to that, and if I just do that, then it will be even, and I have my way out, and I go out with dignity, instead of having all this mud on me that people put on me. But by the grace of God, something hold me, held me back. I think I know who. And not by my will, not necessarily, because the temptation was pretty strong. But by the grace of God, he held me back, and I didn't do that. And four, five years later, I think it may be five. Okay, possibly six. I don't know. It doesn't matter. A number of years later, I had those people right in front of me. Embarrassed. Sparkling eyes, because tears were beginning to form. 
and in their own way, apologizing. And then I thought, Lord, you're awesome. You're totally, totally awesome. Because the damage they intended to inflict was only temporary. And I saw them after things were restored by the Lord, but in a situation, in a condition where they had to acknowledge that they were wrong. Had I reacted the way I was tempted to, who would be on the wrong side? I would be. And I would have never been in that position, ever, had I followed my own carnal ways. So I know that that works. But I also know that when you go through it, it doesn't look that way. <laughs> okay? It really doesn't look that way, but it works. I tell you, it works. Being meek and gentle means knowing how to be quiet. Yes, let me say it in a modern terms. Shut up and be still before the Lord. You know, that is a very good advice. Sometimes what you've got to think about is shut up. Don't say what you want to say. Hold it back. Psalm 4. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Think. Psalm 46 says, Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So stop striving. Right? How do you start that? I mean, how do you start stopping? How do you start the process of ceasing to strive? Here's how. Shut up. <laughs> Keep your mouth shut. Keep your tongue for yourself. Don't say what you're tempted to say. Because when you say that word, here comes the explosion. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. So, yes, First Thessalonians 4 adds an instruction to what I said before. Not only to keep your mouth shut, but mind your own business. Isn't that interesting? Now, Meekness does not mean to assert one's own rights. It means to live for the glory of God. And the glory of God is best accomplished when instead of putting down the person next to us, we lift them up. We build them up. We participate in the work of the Lord in transforming them into something precious, something awesome, something beautiful that the Lord Jesus Christ is pleased to present to the Father as being pure, immaculate, as a work of art, as a masterpiece. Remember Marianne in the example at the beginning? This young girl, this teenager that grew up in an atheist family where everything about Jesus and religion was put down. She started attending that church. And when she did that foolish thing, one of the deacons came to know that. 
And he went to her and yelled at her, Why did you do such a stupid thing like that for? You ought to know better than that. That's all he was able to say before she started crying and weeping in tears and left the church. And it took several weeks for the pastor and his wife to regain her trust. How would you like to be the one to give that account to Jesus? Let's see. Jesus is separating the sheep from the goats and here you come and Jesus says, what do you have to show for yourself? Well, I talk to, I talk to Marianne and I let her have it because of her mistake. Oh, you, uh, you mean Marianne, the one over here that is next to me? In beautiful white robe, washed by the blood of Christ, made pure by the sacrifice of my son, and you browbeat her, and you put her down, and you humiliated her, and you caused her to doubt, to waver, to question the sacrifice of my son? Is that who you're talking about? And I can see this deacon shrinking to nothing. And I hope that neither you nor I will ever be in that position. Do you remember the Rembrandt and the Pieta? You know what the curators of the museums did? They didn't take the Rembrandt and the Pieta and say, oh, these are defective goods, these are broken goods, let's just take a big trash can and throw them in there. No, they called the best people that they could ever find. No price too high. No price too high. They got the best people in their world. And they brought them in as a team to restore to restore those works of art as much as possible to their original splendor. You know, the Father in heaven does the same thing. He calls the best of the universe, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And it comes in you and it does a masterpiece of work. An awesome job in restoring you to the image of God with which he created you. Because you are his masterpiece. But so is the person next to you. So is the person you despise. So is the person that you find has problems and issues. So what about that? What about being part of that instead of being a hindrance to that process? Wouldn't it be so much better to be participating with Christ in that work of restoring a masterpiece that God is creating? Even when that masterpiece may have been damaged by the foolishness of people, by the sin of this world. Because I don't know if you realize it yet or understand it yet, but sin damages. It damages you, it damages others around you. But God does not take those damaged goods and dump them in the trash. He comes within us. He works from inside. He restores us. He beautifies us. He cleanses us. 
He mends us. And there we are, ready to be presented to the Father as a beautiful masterpiece. Actually, there is a difference between the Rembrandt and the Pietà and us. The Rembrandt, as much as it may be restored, is still damaged. The Pietà, even though they put that little toe back in there, is still an attached piece. But in the hands of God, your finished product is so much better than what he started with. So much greater than what he ever started with. It's not just a patch-up work. It's a work of creation. It's a work of making you who you are in Christ. And that's absolutely awesome. And that's absolutely, absolutely superior to anything you've ever been before. And imagine the thrill. Imagine the awesome honor of being part of that process as God uses us to reach out to the person next to us with a meekness and gentleness that it takes to accomplish that work. The promise, they will inherit the earth. It's not Alexander the Great who is going to inherit the earth. Yes, Alexander the Great, the individual who thought he would conquer the world. Sounds like Pinky in the brain. What are we going to do tonight? Same thing we do every night. Trying to take over the world. Well, Alexander was really trying to do that. Alexander the Great. And you know what, did, what he did one day? He got upset with one of his friends. He turned around and he nailed him to the wall with a spear. And he lost the respect, the respect of all his people. That was the beginning of his downfall. Now, it doesn't take an Alexander the Great, but it takes a humble and gentle man to inherit the earth. And that's what Jesus says. You're faithful to me in the little things you're doing now. You follow me because I am humble, I am gentle, I am meek in my spirit. You follow me in my footsteps. And you collaborate with me in making the person next to you better than he or she was. And one day you're going to rule over the earth. Imagine that. You see, Jesus came to minister to bruised individuals and broken hearts. He was never rough, never in a hurry, never neglectful. Many hurting people were comforted by, just by his presence, even before they were made well. But just in his presence, they found comfort, just like you and I do today. But today, we, his body, are the ones who are called to continue that ministry. We are the, his hands and feet. We are his mouth. We are his body. We are the people who are to continue that. And in our presence, or better yet, please forgive me, in his presence, in us, people should find the same comfort today. That's your calling.
That's my calling. To display his love and care in meekness and gentleness. Just like he would. Just like he does. So may he give us such a heart to continue that great work the way he started it. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord God Almighty, Father in heaven. Thank you so much for giving us a spirit of gentleness and meekness. For calling us to be faithful to you so that one day we will indeed inherit the earth and all of your creation. We ask you that you would change our hearts, that you would grant us to be able to see in the person in front of us, whoever that may be, even our enemy, that you may grant us to be able to see your masterpiece, your work of art, your awesome creation, and that you would move us to want to contribute to its beauty and not just our self-will or our vindication. We ask you for a new heart, a new way of being. We ask you that you would indeed make us Christians as the song that we sung earlier states. And being a Christian means being your follower, meekly and humbly following you, allowing you to guide us in all things. This is what we pray and ask for. And we do, we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. One song.